Welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese history and culture through historical Chinese dramas. We're your hosts for today, Kathy and Karen. Today, we will discuss episodes 30 and 31 of the story of Yanxi Palace or Yanxi Gonglue. This podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain Chinese phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. If you have any questions, please reach out to us. In this podcast episode, we will do an episode recap and then move on to history. In the last two episodes, we followed our main character Wei Yingluo work hard labor at Xinzheku, the department of hard labor. This created an opening for those wanting to harm the empress, as she now doesn't have such a protective servant helping her, or at least a capable protective servant. What's more problematic is that the empress is pregnant as well, which makes the women of the palace even more eager to strike. We now return to the family feast the Empress Dowager organized for the Double Ninth Festival. It's quite dark out, and one of the maids brought over a plate of deer blood for the Empress's hot pot. But the Empress didn't want to eat it, so the maid retreated. As this maid stepped back, though, she dropped the plate of blood. Immediately, a huge swarm of bats appear out of nowhere, apparently attracted by the fallen plate of blood, which looks so fake, <laughs> it's rather disturbing. Just way too bright of a red. Anyways, the bats attack the ladies indiscriminately, and it's absolute chaos. The result is that Gao Guifei takes this opportunity to shove the empress down a railing so that she falls to the ground, a ways away, unconscious. Gao Guifei herself slams her shoulder into a pillar to pretend that she injured herself while trying to save the empress, but hiding what really happened. It is sadly too late to prevent harm to the empress. When things have been calmed, she is brought back to her palace and tended to by a number of doctors. She has a large bruised forehead and is now unconscious. The emperor who has arrived is absolutely distraught at hearing what happened and stays at her bedside. But the empress is now left in precarious health. It is unclear when she'll be healthy again or even wake up. Elsewhere, Xianfei impresses the Empress Dowager as she took charge of the situation with quick thinking and leadership poise while the bats were attacking. During that scene, I kind of felt like the Empress Dowager had one of those, you know, rom-com moments yeah. <laughs> of like, oh my god, my knight in shining armor, except for it's Xianfei. <laughs> and I was like, you go, Charmaine. <laughs> Xianfei manages to keep some semblance of order until the Imperial Guards arrived. After the chaos subsided, the Empress Dowager was so impressed with Xianfei that she decides to give more power to Xianfei. With a power vacuum now present in the palace given the Empress's current state, Xianfei will now easily fill that role. I also do love that the Empress Dowager looks down upon Chunfei for being too scared uh, during this whole scene, which kind of shows you the, I guess, end result for these two women 
One is more manly and courageous and decisive, while the other one was shrieking from fright. I wouldn't say manly, more brave, but that's that's a term that the Empress Dowager uses. Gotcha, gotcha. Mingyi, in a, in a nice turn, feels terrible about not having been able to protect the Empress from such an unfortunate attack, and goes to find Yingluo for help at Xinzheku. I do feel bad for Mingyu, who was not equipped to handle a million bats attacking the group. And come on, Erzhen, where were you? I do think, though, that maybe Yingluo would have been a little bit better at protecting the Empress. But yeah, uh, I don't think Mingyu was just equipped for something like this. Yingluo already has a gut feeling after hearing that it was Gao Guifei who first found the Empress that Gao Guifei orchestrated some parts of this. And yep, I mean, as we mentioned, it was her that planned the attacking bats. She injured herself in order to steer any and all suspicion away from her. She is absolutely relishing in her victory against the Empress, despite the pain she placed upon herself. And I find her screams of pain rather hilarious. What is so funny is that when I was watching the scene, I was like, does this actress really talk like this? Is that how she really speaks in real life? And no, I went to watch a couple of her um, actual interviews and she is certainly playing a part for Gao Guifei, but that doesn't mean that her laughing isn't causing me to laugh. What is surprising is that when Ying Luo is dragged by Ming Yu to go check up on the Empress, Ying Luo suddenly turns extremely cold towards the entire staff of Changchun Palace. In front of all of her old colleagues, she states that what happens to the Empress is none of her Yingluo's business anymore. They are no longer connected after the Empress banished her, so she, Yingluo, should not have to bother thinking about the Empress whatsoever. This angers all of the other maids at Changchun Palace. Fu Hong, who is impatiently waiting for news about his sister as well, is also similarly rebuffed when he tries to talk to Yingluo. She wants nothing to do with them or him because her current life is indeed extremely harsh. Shortly after, Yingluo is goaded into sending large buckets of milk over to Chu Xiaogong, where Gao Guifei lives, by Jin Xiao, one of the other maids or rival maids of Yingluo at Xinzheku. Yingluo accepts this task, which is already a little bit suspect, but Gao Weifei is, of course, still ecstatic to find out that the Empress has met her downfall and even more pleased to see the likes of Ying Luo act as her lowly servant. Despite Gao Guifei's uh, shoulder injuries, she relishes in humiliating and even stepping on Ying Luo's hands as Ying Luo prepares a bath for Gao Guifei using the milk she brought. Luckily for Ying Luo, and I don't know if this was timed, I feel like it might not be, but still, it was perfect timing. The emperor arrives to visit Gao Guifei. He happens upon a disheveled-looking Ying Luo with clear injuries on her hand. She is dismissed by Gao Guifei, but then is followed by the emperor because he could tell something was amiss. He followed Ying Luo in the pouring rain to see her hunched in a corner of the garden next to some rocks looking absolutely dazed with her hands also severely injured. The emperor is furious at Ying Luo's respectful greeting to him, 
looking pitiful in the rain, and angrily throws her his umbrella, but not before telling her to get out of his sight. This is an interesting scene to me because it shows that the emperor cares about Ying Luo, even though he might not know why he cares about her. This is also some kind of like, for him, um, mental gymnastics of like, why are you uh, showing this very humble persona to me? Like, I don't, I will not fall for this. But he kind of does because he goes to his study and paces around for a hot second before turning around and stomping back to where Ying Luo hid in the garden. He literally like stomped back. And uh, I love the scene because his eunuch Li Yu is like, wait, why are we going out again? (laughs) (laughs) The emperor remembered just how injured Ying Luo looked. So he wanted to check in on her. But by the time... The emperor went back to her hiding place. She had gone, leaving the umbrella behind. The emperor is annoyed that she didn't accept his kindness, which is fair, but to Li Yu's point, she would not have dared accept the umbrella. What's interesting, though, is immediately he forbids anyone from using milk for other purposes rather than eating. So, for example, bathing. So this is now strictly banned. He says in his mind, or justifies it in his mind, that it is expensive and lavish, so we should not kind of continue these habits. This is implicitly punishing Gao Guifei for what she did to Ying Luo, even though he, the emperor, wasn't blatant about it. (laughs) I also like how Li Yu is like, uh, okay. Meanwhile, Ying Luo, having been out in the rain and suffering numerous injuries, passes out alongside one of the corridors of the palace. It is at that moment that Xian Fei's procession happens by, and she, in an offhanded comment, asks for a doctor to tend to Ying Luo. I don't think Xian Fei even knew who this maid was, but was kind enough to call for a doctor to check up on her. As one of the eunuchs who helped drag Ying Luo off the main road noted, Ying Luo must thank Xian Fei for her kindness. No other master in the palace would help the likes of Ying Luo in her curtain state. And this is an extremely important fact to remember. However, you know, on to the rest of the story. Both Ying Luo and the Empress are now sick, which gives Xian Fei the opportunity to fully showcase her skills. At the end of episode 30 and on to 31, we turn to Xian Fei's management abilities. After being given authority to manage the palace in the Empress's stead by the Empress Dowager, Xian Fei has come up with a number of new ideas to help reduce waste in the palace and garner more funds. Her management style is starkly different from the Empress's, who focuses a lot on cost-cutting, whereas Xian Fei is identifying new ideas for growth. And I'm pretty sure you can tell which style is more preferred by the entire palace. I mean, for your company, do you like hearing cost-cutting measures? Nope. Xian Fei does also suggest to the Empress Dowager, with Gao Guifei sitting to the side, that she plans to set up a porridge tent, or equivalent to a soup kitchen for recent flood victims or refugees that have escaped to the capital. Xian Fei enjoys the full support 
of the Empress Dowager, much to the chagrin of Gao Guifei, and sets off to do her task. Though, I do greatly appreciate Gao Guifei seeing through Xian Fei's quote-unquote act. Gao Guifei's line uh, that she can see through actors quite easily was incredibly on the nose, and I really like that line for some reason. As we know, Xian Fei is not the innocent and uncompetitive lamb we've met at the beginning of the drama. And I think right now, the only person who can tell Gao Guifei, or sorry, Xian Fei has a facade on is Gao Guifei. The day of charity arrives and Xian Fei goes to oversee the hunger crowd. The palace staff that help out in giving food come from none other than Xin Ku, as well as a few other places. But the reason why the likes of Yuan Chun Wang is there is because Xin Ku servants are given this opportunity. Ying Luo is quote-unquote too ill to join, but Yuan Chun Wang watches with his beady eyes as flood victims at first orderly get food, but then shortly after turn into a mob. A number of disgruntled refugees start making a scene, arguing that the amount of food is not nearly enough to feed the crowd, and they start getting violent. As Xian Fei and company are about to get overwhelmed, Yuan Chuan Wang forcefully steps in and slays one of the troublemaking refugees. I personally think this is a little overboard, to be honest. Like, a unit can just kill someone outright on the streets? Mmm, okay? His reasoning is that he can tell that these people causing the scene are not actually refugees. It's a pretty good bit of detective work where he says, look, their shoes are in too good of a condition for them to be refugees traveling from far away. So there must be something wrong here. Hong Zhou, the emperor's brother, arrives at the nick of time with a number of soldiers and guards to create or resume order in the crowd. Hong Zhou originally wanted to skip town and watch over his mother's grave for three years, but was pushed back by the emperor. The emperor knows that Hong Zhou pretended to play dumb for years, but he kind of let it go. After the death of his mother, or Hong Zhou's mother, the emperor right now is furious that even after all of these um, you know, life-changing events, Hong Zhou never focused on giving back to the empire, and all he's thinking about is, oh my gosh, hopefully my brother doesn't kill me. I hope, I mean, maybe this is just what uh, Hong Zhou thinks about his father, because quite frankly, his father did kill a lot of his brothers. Um, but in this episode, we do see that em- the emperor say, I am not my father. After these harsh words, that is what causes Hongzhou to accept Xianfei's invitation to help out at the charity event, and thus arrived like a knight in shining armor. This entire scene at this charity event, porridge tent, soup kitchen, whatever you want to call it, well, in Chinese it would be called a porridge tent, uh, gave Yuan Chunlong, Xianfei, and Hongzhou an opportunity to shine. Yuan Chunlong, in front of both Royals clearly pointed out the individuals inciting a riot, which Hongzhou then promptly had captured. Yuan Chunwang also pointed out that there are many people in the crowd pretending to be refugees hoping to get free food. That is why the crowd is so much larger than anticipated. 
Xianfei immediately understands the predicament and orders that in order to receive food for the day, the receiver must work. This immediately thins out the crowd because only those that are truly hungry with nowhere to go, aka true refugees and flood victims, would want to make such an exchange. Everyone else who doesn't want to do labor will naturally fade away. And so, a successful day of charity is concluded. We see that Xianfei is extremely capable of management, and she has the unparalleled skill of understanding human nature. Her discussion on what causes people to be maybe too lazy at free handouts, I thought was quite ingenious. As for Yuan Chunwang, he is given the post as head of Xinzhe Ku Bai Xianfei, a substantial promotion from his original role. And so we have two people really stepping up. Let's also not forget that Hongzhou was making some uh, butterfly eyes at Xianfei earlier in the episode as well. In the next episode, we will turn to Xianfei guiding the emperor who had heard of Xianfei's successful exploits for the day to check out the beautiful birthday gift that Gao Guifei had been putting together for the Empress Dowager to disastrous results. But that would be for the next episode. The only other main point to bring up today is that Fu Heng has directly rejected Er Qing's affections. She mentioned that the emperor wanted to pair them two together for marriage, which Fu Heng promptly refused. He, of course, has his eyes only for Ying Luo. Er Qing is dazed by this response, but the person who is equally distraught at this news is none other than Chun Fei. She had been tending to the Empress's bedside during her illness and is shocked to hear that Fu Heng is interested in marrying Ying Luo, and the Empress is approving of this match too. We will see more of that storyline later as well. What I find very fascinating is that Chun Fei also calls Fu Heng by his first name. The first time I ever watched this show, I was really confused at Chun Fei's reaction. It always does help after you watch the show a first time to kind of see what the characters were hinting at in the very beginning. So this is continues to be one of those examples. Now on to history. We're going to dig a little bit more into the banquet and the little creatures involved that led to the Empress's unconscious state. These were also uh, shown, or the banquet was shown at the end of episode 29, but because episode 30 is the main focus of the aftermath of the banquet, I will talk about the banquet here. First up, I want to talk about hot pot or huo guo that is specially prepared for the empress. Unfortunately, in this scene, we don't really see the empress eat anything, but we do see a beautiful display of mushrooms and of course, venison or deer blood and a very, very beautiful copper pot. Well, what is hot pot or huo guo? Basically, it is a cooking method where you have a large pot with soup or broth as a base and let the broth come to a boil. There is usually, or there's a live fire under the pot. Then you, as the eater, can add a variety of sides into the soup or broth until 
the ingredient that you put in the broth is cooked. Then you pick out the food from the pot, dip it into whatever sauce you'd like, and voila, that is hot pot. The Chinese have had records of hot pot dating back over 2,000 years. More concretely, though, historians believe hot pot became more popularized during the Three Kingdoms period between 220 to 280 AD with the advent of copper hot pots. Hot pots flourished throughout millennia, and by the time of the Qing Dynasty, it was very popular not only with normal people, but also with the royal elites as well. Indeed, our emperor of this show, Qianlong, really, really enjoyed hot pot. There are records that during one year, Emperor Qianlong had some form of hot pot as a meal for over 200 meals. That's a lot of hot pot. <laughs> so let's see what he had. In the spring, there was pickled cabbage hot pot and venison tendon and duck hot pot. In the summer, he had yam and duck hot pot and even swallow's nest hot pot. There are records that in 1783, which is, you know, 40 years after where we currently are, Emperor Qianlong held a hot pot banquet that had 530 tables. Emperor Qianlong, our current emperor, also loved traveling to the southern parts of his empire, which is, quite frankly, a common plot point in many Chinese dramas, which we will also explore in this drama. Wherever he went, he happened to also bring hot pot with him, and it added different flavors to his hot pot meals. This is what happened with the addition of Swallow's Nest to, I guess, his hot pot rotation. In the Palace Museum in Beijing, they still have some of the silver pots that were used by the emperor during that time, However, what to me is fascinating that, as I said, hot pot was popular not only with the royal elites, but also with the everyday common folk. And that, of course, also meant that hot pot was available to palace maids. There are records during the Qing Dynasty of palace maids saying that they basically ate hot pot for like three months <laughs> and like nothing but hot pot. <laughs> that sounds like a dream, to be honest. <laughs> The one that we see in the drama, it's kind of like a flash and you'll miss it in at least episode 30, like in the beginning. It's a pretty traditional Beijing or Northern copper hot pot. Typically, it would be a red copper pot with a clear water base on a charcoal flame. And then North, it's more called a shuan guo and definitely more meat heavy, especially with the lamb. Different regions have different styles for hot pot. Perhaps the most famous from China, like outside to the rest of the world right now, is the Sichuan and Chongqing hot pot. These are famed for its spiciness and mala flavors. Also, it's just basically a lot of red oil. <laughs> Who doesn't love oil? If you've never had hot pot, please try it out. You can try out all different types of flavors with different sides from vegetables to meats to noodles for the ingredients that you put in the broth. And the broth can be everything from the spicy mala red oil chili flavor that we said to, you know, a tomato-based soup to a mushroom-based soup. Um, and there's a, just a ton of variety. In the winter, we actually do hot pot at home. Um, and it's a great time to eat with family as well. So if you've never tried, again, please try hot pot.
also talk about the food in question. Venison or deer blood? Again, this was like comically red. Red. <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, normally, blood is not that color. In Chinese culture, deer blood has medicinal and nutritional properties. It was typically reserved for the royal family. Now, typically, blood for eating is coagulated, which is why in the drama you see the deer blood in blocks or cube-shaped forms. In certain areas of China, coagulated blood is commonly eaten with hot pot, but it's mainly pig blood. Next up, I'm going to talk briefly about the bats. The whole plotline of bats is just a convenient little interlude conjured by the screenwriter. In China, there are no bat species that feed solely on blood. There are three species that do, but they all reside in South America. Those are, of course, the vampire bats. So unless Shu Guiren was able to have her family take a boat or train with the modern-day Central Americans and South Americans, the whole bat being attracted to and attacking people here is uh, just for plot purposes. There are indigenous bat populations in China, namely the Ricketts Big-Footed Bat, but they surprisingly eat fish and bugs. The Ricketts Big-Footed Bat actually did live in buildings in Beijing, but they are more commonly found in the southeastern and southern parts of China. Beijing is quite north comparatively. So once again, there's no vampire bats in China. <laughs> I also didn't fully understand this plot point, like where they were able to get so many bats to attack at one uh, fell swoop, but we'll just take it as is. Hey, Shu Guiren definitely had her family just bring a boat of bats <laughs> from other continents. Lastly, I want to talk briefly about the Beijing Hucheng'he, or the moat for the Forbidden City. For the drama, we don't actually see the moat, but basically this is where Consort Xian or Xian Fei has to set up her soup kitchen. And this is where the Empress Dowager says, okay, there's a lot of refugees. Um, are you able to support them? Construction of a canal or river into the city that would become Beijing began in the late 12th century. The actual moat, or what is now known as Tongzihe, formally began construction during the Ming Dynasty under the reign of Emperor Yongle. This emperor was also the emperor that decided to shift or move the capital city from the south to current-day Beijing. The moat system in Beijing was pretty complicated, as it had outer, inner, imperial, and palatial systems. The moat that encircles the Forbidden City is only 20 meters away from the palace wall. And as for every good moat, the moat was built mainly for military defense, fire prevention, and water drainage purposes. Unfortunately, today there isn't much left of the moats, but the city of Beijing is trying to preserve and rebuild parts of the moat in efforts to preserve its history. Now, Karen, we've been to parts of Beijing and there is still like markers of the moats. Um, and then there are kind of, you know, lakes and rivers that uh, I've seen, you know, being reconstructed. So it is going to be a long term effort. But I hope at least we can get to see some of the former grandeur of the imperial moats. What's crazy is Beijing right now is such a massive city that on a map, 
the current remnants of the moat seem pretty small. I'm like looking at a map, I'm like, wait, that's it? <laughs> but when you go to the Forbidden City or the palace, that in itself is so huge that uh, I kind of have to like step back to remind myself that back then, Beijing was not the size. The Forbidden Palace was massive in it of itself. Well, part of me was trying to understand for this moat, because it's not like we haven't been there before. Obviously, it's dried right now. But um, if Xianfei in episode 30 was talking about people um, growing lotus uh, roots and things like that, like what that would look like. I've been trying to imagine that. And I just don't know if her ideas would have po been possible or come to fruition. Well, actually, no, it, it is true that some parts of the moat, I guess it's different sections, um, they did, or the palace did use certain sections to have lotus roots or some sort of vegetation or vegetables. Hmm, interesting. And that is it for today's podcast episode. Let us know what you think. If you like our content, please do leave us a comment on social media or else leave us a rating on whatever platform you listen to us to. If you are looking for other platforms to watch Chinese dramas or movies, please do check out our sponsor, Jubao TV, which has a number of Chinese dramas and movies to watch with English subtitles, all for free. Online, you can check out their website, Jumo or XUMO. And then on TV, for those of you in the States, this is available on Xfinity, Cox Contour, and also Sling TV. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will catch you in the next episode.